Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WAB in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a new report reveals the racial makeup of state Supreme Courts is not actually reflective of many of the state's overall population. So I'll speak with the roundtable about the findings and we'll hear what they have to say in terms of what changes and what are the best practices to improve the state Supreme Court's racial makeup. But we'll begin with this. Former Georgia Republican Representative Doug Collins says he will not run for office, any office, in 2022. Collins made the announcement this morning through a statement posted on Twitter. The Gainesville Republican says he plans to continue playing a role in conservative politics and will help in efforts for his party to win back the House and the Senate. Uh, Collins ran unsuccessfully for the seat now held by Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. There was some speculation that Collins would run again this year. In other news, Georgians should soon have access to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine once again. Now, state public health officials say they'll begin offering the one-shot vaccine to folks 18 and older, pending communication with providers. They say about 211,000 doses are currently in inventory throughout the state. Federal public health officials recommended a pause on the vaccine early this month after reports of rare but severe blood clots in a number of women who received it, a small number of women who received it. They lifted the pause Friday and advised perhaps a warning label should be added to the vaccine. Speaking of vaccines, the state is changing its approach to getting more Georgians vaccinated. Governor Brian Kemp recently mentioned the state's strategy is shifting away from mass vaccination sites to a focus on smaller vaccine programs that they could hopefully use with local churches and doctor's office. And at this time, just about 5.8 million vaccines have been administered which is about 23% of Georgians are now fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the total number of cases since all this began last year here in Georgia, 875,493 confirmed coronavirus cases, 17,387 Georgians have died due to the virus. And right now, the total number of hospitalizations that have occurred since last year, 61,088. And as always, our information comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And if you don't believe us, but you want your own breakdown, it's easy. Go to WABE.org slash coronavirus. Finally, Atlanta-based filmmaker Tyler Perry was honored with a different kind of award during last night's Oscars. Perry received the honorary Oscar known as the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award. And I want to take this Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award and dedicate it to anyone who wants to stand in the middle No matter what's around the wall, stand in the middle, because that's where healing happens. That's where conversation happens. That's where change happens. It happens in the middle. So anyone who wants to meet me in the middle to refuse hate, to refuse blanket judgment, and to help lift someone's feet off the ground, this one is for you too. God bless you, and thank you, Academy. I appreciate it. 
This is Closer Look. I'm going to take you back a little bit because I know I wasn't born and I don't know if my other guests were, but I don't want to age them. On August 30th, 1967, the Senate confirmed the appointment of Thurgood Marshall. Now, Justice Marshall became the first black justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. And after Justice Marshall's retirement in 1991, then President George Bush nominated Clarence Thomas, who would later be confirmed. And I also we say, well, you know what? There's been a lot of progress, right, Rose? There's been some progress in terms of racial diversity as it relates to judges within the nation's judiciary landscape. But a new report from the Brennan Center reveals the racial makeup of the state Supreme Courts. They have a long way to go to achieve what might be considered adequate diversity. And this new report was an update from 2019. And then the key fact from that report, according to the Brennan Center, quote, 24 states currently have an all-white Supreme Court bench, including eight states in which people of color are at least a quarter of the state's general population. Fast forward to their latest report. Not much is better. But what needs to happen? So joining me now to offer their insight, I have Tanya Washington-Hicks, professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law, and from Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit public defender organization, Jonathan Rapping, president and founder of Gideon's Promise, along with Ilham Askia, executive director of Gideon's Promise. Welcome to you all. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose, for having great us here. <laughs> great, great to be here with you all. So I hope I didn't age anyone by saying I think I don't know if any of y'all were, you know, born in, in 1967. <laughs> I was a baby. He was a baby. <laughs> you know, but before we dig into the Brennan report, let's begin with last week's uh, guilty verdict, because I do think it it lends itself to the, the conversation we're about to have. And that is with the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd. We've heard a lot of analysis such as this was accountability, but far from justice. Uh, Professor Washington uh, Hicks, I'll begin with you. Your takeaway from not only just the verdict, but the everything leading up to it. So I do agree that it was an expression of accountability and not justice. I mean, we did convict one person, but we've yet to indict the system that continues to perpetuate outcomes that place um, black and brown and poor folks uh, in harm's way. But I think we need to be mindful that one of the reasons we got this kind of a verdict is because of the diversity of the decision makers. I mean, it was an extraordinarily diverse jury. Normally, you don't have that in um, prosecutions of police for uh, brutality against citizens. And so we need to be mindful that when you get a diverse jury or when you have a diverse bench, Mm -hmm. you're going to get better justice. Jonathan, your reflections on what Tanya, not only what Professor Washington Hicks had to say, but in general to the verdict from last week. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with everything Professor Washington said. And, I, you know, I think it's so interesting is, is when you look to the system to exact justice from the people the system uses to police and prosecute and punish It takes a situation like Derek Chauvin caught on videotape kneeling on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes, followed by nearly a year of public outcry um, in order to actually get a verdict like we saw. And I think what it really shows is that um, we can't count on a system to get justice for people that we don't see as human beings. Uh, We need community. 
We need advocates, we need activists, we need public defenders reminding us every step of the way that every person, not just George Floyd, but every person subjected to police violence is a human being who's worthy of taking time to look at and, and see um, that justice is, is, is deserving. All right, Ilhan, your viewpoints on all of that. And I just think to sum it all up is that we cannot be complacent. Although this was a small step, this was a small step and a very, very, we have a long way to go. It's a marathon and not a sprint. And so changing the culture of the criminal legal system is going to take time. It's going to take the community. It's going to take activists and advocates to really change things. So although this was a small victory for people of color and economically disadvantaged communities, we cannot just be resolved that it is over. And so we must continue and continue to fight and make change and push for change. Ilhan, let me stay with you because now as we begin to talk about that report from the Brennan Center, which we'll begin with this, in 22 states, all of the state Supreme Court justices are white. And in 11 of those states, as they put it, people of color make up at least 20 percent of the population. I know you all had a chance to go through some of the report. Is this alarming? Is it even startling to you? Ilham, I'll start with you. I, I wasn't surprised. I, I wasn't surprised. I mean, we have had challenges on the bench with diversity for a very long time. And also not just racial diversity, but diversity and experience, right? Mm-hmm. Experiential diversity is important. When you look at the number of people in law school, people of color in law school, those diversity numbers are alarming, right? Then you move them into my area of public interest, they're alarming. So I wasn't surprised by it. Um, I think that I'm glad the Brennan Center put the report out because now we have more work to do in, in this effort. Jonathan, what about you? Your thoughts on overall on that report? Yeah, well, I completely agree with Ilham. I mean, we we work in the criminal legal space developing advocates, uh, you know, as referring to my earlier answer, to make sure that we see every person as a human being. And I think far too often we we come across administrators, um, judges, prosecutors, but certainly judges who don't understand the people their decisions impact because they don't come from those communities or they haven't had experience where they've actually been able to see what what those communities are exposed to in the criminal legal system. And I think when you have judges that don't understand the people um, they judge, it is very easy to reduce human beings to cases, to process people through the system. And so while I absolutely think we have to continue to build a movement of advocates to make sure every person is seen as a human being, having a diverse bench Um, people who come from communities that are impacted and people who have spent time as professionals um, standing next to people who are advocate who who are impacted is is critical. I'm not surprised like Illy because I've been in that court system and I've seen the lack of diversity on the bench. Mm -hmm. Professor Washington, you and when we were talking about this segment, you told me that you you were fortunate enough to have a mentor who was a person of color, who was a black judge. How important was that for you? It was extraordinary. And you mentioned um, Thurgood Marshall. So the judge that I clerked for on the Maryland Supreme Court, he started out his legal career as a defendant trying to desegregate a lunch counter. And his lawyer was Thurgood Marshall. So here's a Baltimore born and bred Black man who, you know, goes on to Harvard, gets his 
degree and comes back and served on every bench in the Maryland Supreme in the Maryland court system ultimately becomes chief justice replacing the prosecutor as chief justice. So, I mean, just his story and to have been able to work with him on these cases where he was writing all of these scathing indictments of the system was just extraordinary. So nobody can tell me that a dissenting voice does not have power. You don't need to be in the majority. He's writing for justice down the line. And his perspective on the bench, he was the only Black justice that we had. Um, he was he was not afraid to share with his colleagues how he saw things so differently because his experiences were different and his perspectives were different. And so I just, you know, as a young Black lawyer right out of law school, it was it was the best formative experience I possibly could have had. So, Professor Washington, let me stay with you, because when we read the statistic that people of color make up 40 percent of the U.S. population, but then also in 28 states where there are no black state Supreme Court justice, 40 have no Latino court just uh, Supreme Court justice. Forty four states have no Asian American state Supreme Court justice. Forty seven states have no Native American state Supreme Court justice, including three states that have a high percentage of of a Native American population. So mm-hmm. Professor Washington, I'll stay I'll start I'll stay with you. What does that say to you? Where is the problem? Through your so, lens, what's the problem? I would add to those statistics the rate of incarceration and arrest and prosecution, right? So then when you look at those numbers where we're overrepresented um, as people of color, um, and then you look at the the dearth of Black judges and Black prosecutors and other, you know, administrators of justice um, or legal administrators, um, it's, it's shocking. We can't call that a justice system. And I'm so glad to hear the, the co- um, my, co-colleagues on the panel talk about this as a criminal legal system. It's not a justice system. The people who make it just are the people that Jonathan's talking about, who push for it against all odds, under-resourced, against all kinds of challenges to eke out something that we can call justice. But if, if the system just operates as it is, it is designed to grind people up and spit them out. I want, to, I want to now turn to Ilham and Jonathan because with the work that you all are doing at Gideon's Problems, now here's another statistic from this report. 32% of state Supreme Court justices are former prosecutors, while 7% are former public defenders. Ilham. Yeah, so that, when you asked earlier, was I shocked by diversity? No, but was I shocked in diversity of former profession of the bench? Absolutely. 7% of public defenders, and as you know, we work with public defenders all across the country to transform the criminal legal system, to make it more just, fair, and tell the stories of the people our public defenders represent. But I think you asked about what what is the cause. Mm -hmm. We are not looking to the undergraduate institutions to find our diversity. We are not looking to where there a lot of first generation students, right? They get pushed to go to just because like me, students like me, economically disadvantaged growing up, I need to go to law school, become a lawyer to make money. And I'm not saying discounting corporate lawyers, but there are not enough public 
interest lawyers in law school, but you can't wait till they get to law school. You've got to start in the undergraduate institutions and really looking at historically black colleges and universities and schools that have a high concentration of people of color to push them and urge them in that space. Then you'll start to see those numbers change. And also, if the decision makers are all coming from the same place, of course, you're going to see more prosecutors on the bench, right? Public defenders have often been ignored. I'm not surprised they are ignored when when you get seats on the bench. And so we really have to look and ask ourselves the question, you know, are we being fair? Are we being just? Do we have representation, not just racial and ethnic, experiential, uh, performer jobs, economics, all of that needs to take into place. And do these people belong? Is a sense of belonging in the system? And that's what I think really we need to look at and stop looking at the symptoms and look at the root causes of why we see the numbers we see today. Well, Jonathan, there's another aspect here that I want to add on to what Ilhan was talking about, because the Brennan Center suggests that states, through their lens, reform how they choose their high court judges and adopt what they call a transparent, publicly accountable appointment process, and a lengthy lengthy single term. Now, in, in some states where obviously many are appointed by the governor, and often it's I think it's fair to say that given the political structure of that state, you may find an appointee that might lean more toward the political affiliation of said governor. Uh, is that a, Do you agree with the Brennan Center that maybe this process states should review how they choose their high court judges and maybe revamp that? Don't know if it'll happen, but that's what they say. Yeah, well, look, Rose, I, I, I think you're you're right that that any system appointments, elections um, can themselves reflect the biases of uh, of the system. Um you know, there was an interesting proposal in, in, in the Brennan report, actually, I think it was an earlier Brennan report that talked about public financing to uh, to match or triple or quadruple small donations to really amplify the political voice of small donors, because we're starting to see that wealthier, more powerful donors have a lot of influence in an election system. Um, And I think that system is in place in New York. That may be a way to give voice to grassroots donors who may not be able to donate hundreds of dollars, but maybe tens of dollars. But, But absolutely, we need more transparency. And we have to find a way to make sure that judges reflect the 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 will of everyday people, the people who are impacted by the system and whose loved ones are impacted by the system. Professor Washington Hicks, what do you think in terms of state Supreme Courts and how justices are appointed to the bench? I think a lot of people don't consider how important state Supreme Courts are. They set policy um, and they give direction to the lower courts. And so when they make a decision, it's not just a decision in one case, it's a decision that is going to have an impact all the way down. And so I think reforming the system so it's not appointments-based would really uh, ensure that we have more diversity on the bench. Um, Chief Justice Melton is about to step down, Mm -hmm. which will leave one justice of color on our Georgia Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, That's problematic for a whole lot of reasons. And I want to piggyback on something Ilham said about the recruitment and the pipeline. You don't have Black judges 
if you don't have black law graduates, you don't have black law graduates. If you don't have black students graduating from college, you don't have black students graduating from college if you don't have black students graduating from high school. And so our pipeline needs to start way early, junior high and high school, telling students we need we need to recruit. Right. We need to recruit in schools that have a critical mass of Latino, Asian, African-American and poor students. So they, they see this as possible and they see it as their responsibility to serve in these positions. And we should note that when uh, Chief Justice Melton does step down, that would leave Justice Carla Wong McMillan, who was appointed uh, last year by Governor Brian Kemp. As we wrap up and, and I'm going to ask this question and, and some will say maybe it's fair or not, but. Where do you see if the Brennan, that the Brennan Center does another report, say, uh, three years from now? Do you think we'll see these numbers improve? And, Jonathan, I'll start with you. Well, look, I think there's reason for optimism, but cautious optimism. I, I mean, look, I, I, the federal government, this administration has made a commitment to ensure that, that um, nominees for federal appointments are more diverse, not just race racial diversity or, or cultural diversity, but experiential diversity. And I really do think that the federal government in many ways models for the states. It is much easier for a state to resist claims that they don't have a diverse bench when our national government doesn't have a diverse bench. And so I'm optimistic that this administration will make good on its commitment to have a more diverse bench. And while certainly some states will will follow that lead more readily than others, um, I hope we start to see progress in the next few years. And I'm optimistic. Ilham, are you optimistic? I'm always optimistic, Rose, you know, because I'm on the ground every day. And so, you know, Gideon's Promise has been, you know, facing the diversity challenge in public defense for so long. And we've been very intentional on how we recruit, where we recruit, what uh, allies we need in the space to help us do that. So I think now that the lens is pointing, this center has, this this Brennan Center report has come out, people are now being conscious. Because sometimes when you're doing your day-to-day, you just don't pay attention, right? You become indifferent. You're just not conscious of it. Now that we know, you know, I've said this before on your show, you can't unknow. So now help us bring in people and bring in folks to come and help make change and really change this criminal legal system. So I'm hopeful. And Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks, you get the last word. Optimism in this area? I I am hopeful, and I'm hopeful, unfortunately, because um, people are going to continue to have experiences that call them to this work. There are a lot of young people who saw what happened last summer, and we're getting uh, applications from people who are like, I want to go to law school. I want to, I want to change society. So that's what makes me hopeful. I wish we could be inspired by something other than people suffering and dying, but apparently, you know, that's what moves the crowd. Tanya Washington Hicks, professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law, and from Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit public defender organization. Jonathan Rapping, president and founder of Gideon's Promise, and Ilham Askia, executive director of Gideon's Promise. Thank you all for taking the time. Very important conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf. 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It was last summer, the fatal shooting of Rayshard Brooks, a 27-year-old black man, by a white police officer, and it led to day-long protests and calls for change. We have to make sure that officers intervene in a situation where they see wrongdoing. That was the case with George Floyd, where we saw the officers not intervene. That's not a part of our policies. We have to objectively look at de-escalation. That's not very clear in our policies. Shooting at moving vehicles and so many other things that is we're peeling back the layers of our standard operating procedures. Some of it's ambiguous and some of it is simply not laid out. And what I can say is that if this is a challenge that we are having in Atlanta, I assure you that there are agencies across this country, um, if they haven't already begun to do this work, then they probably need to today. That, of course, is Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of the day after the shooting. Now, we know that here in Atlanta, that case is still pending. We're not sure what's going to happen with it. Meanwhile, Atlanta City Councilmember Antonio Brown has proposed new legislation which would expand APD's, quote, duty to intervene policy. He joins me now to talk more about this. Councilmember Antonio Brown, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose, thanks for having me. Always appreciate you. Let's talk about what what currently is, I guess, on the book, so to speak, for APD, for folks who don't know. Does the Atlanta Police Department, do they, and within their standard operating procedures, do they have anything that lends itself to mandating an officer intervene if they view something as being excessive force? Let's start with that. They do. And uh, it's the APD standard operating procedure that was put in place uh, I believe in 2010, and it's 4.2.51 um, that speaks to an officer's duty to intervene. It's about a paragraph mm-hmm. uh, long. And, you know, I, 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 as much as I appreciate that, um, we've seen how um, without having things truly defined and and officers, uh, as Mayor Bottoms uh, spoke about, as officers being trained in the aspect, the duty to intervene, and our policies being a reflection of that, and we have a very uh, clear, laid out structure for what that means, Mm -hmm. I think that's what this resolution is speaking to, because it, you know, in, in my opinion, I think that there is a sense of retaliation that many officers uh, may feel, um, um, you know, operating in, in that space of, of, of having that duty to intervene. So I, I think that there's a lot of discussion that needs to be had. And I think that we need to work through a, a viable structure for our officers to be able to follow when it comes to our standard operating procedures. 
So you believe that that's also part of what we often is referred to as the blue wall, the blue wall of silence, the unwritten code, if you will, of officers. Uh, but you also mentioned retaliation. I just want to be very clear. That is part of why you think this is, is needed? Yeah, you know, um, I've had the opportunity to speak with some officers uh, just to get a better understanding from them. Uh, I didn't want to just introduce a piece of legislation and not really understand what was happening on the ground. And several officers um, uh, mentioned just their concern um, for potential retaliation mm -hmm. or creating a hostile work environment and or you know, these are folks they have to work with every day. Mm -hmm. So I think morale has a lot to do with it too. So I, I just think there's a lot of things that have to go into consideration when we're looking at expanding the current standard operating procedure. And that's really what this legislation leads to. It leads us to an opportunity to really go in and do the work that we need to do to ensure that this, this standard operating procedure uh, is where it needs to be um, for the protection of our residents um, and for uh, the protection of our officers and, and, and instilling that confidence that I think the public needs and our law enforcement needs so that we can all move forward together. Would this also include additional training for officers? Absolutely. I mean, you're going to have to. I mean, you know, I think any time there is an update to a standard operating procedure within the Atlanta Police Department at any degree, there should be a retraining. And, and that retraining could be as simple as focusing in on the areas that may be new to the officer in which they've never experienced or had to perform while in the field. So I think some of this stuff and, and you know, it's interesting because uh, you're hearing a lot more of this, Rose, this conversation around common sense legislation with regards to policing. And, and I, I do believe that an officer's duty to intervene is common sense um, in the context of policy. But, but I believe that that also means that it requires a reprogramming of how these officers normally interact in the field, understanding, um, you know, the, the moments of escalation. Because when we talk about de-escalating, mm -hmm. you got to be able to truly speak about, you know, well, what does escalating look like? And that mm -hmm. needs to be fully defined. I, I, you know, I, I hear it thrown out all the time, de-escalation, de-escalation, but, but what, what does that look like? What do, does that look like when Rayshard Brooks was um, running away? Does, is that the point in which de-escalation happens? Is it when, you know, the, the taser is used? Is it, you know, how is that defined um, within how we reimagine public safety, not just in the city of Atlanta, but the country? Let's back up a little bit just for some clarity, because I know listeners are probably saying, okay, you're talking about a resolution that does exactly what? Because you're talking about a so, go ahead. Yeah. So, so this resolution rose really it, it it's um it's a way to work with the Atlanta Police Department to set up a process for them to expand on the current standard operating procedure regarding the duty to intervene, and and also 
you know, consider providing additional responsibilities for police officers to intercede when, you know, officers are engaging in using excessive force or any other unlawful activity. So it basically creates a pathway for APD to strengthen this duty to intervene standard operating procedure and really define kind of where we are when it comes to something escalating that would require de-escalation from a colleague performing something that they would see as egregious or unlawful. It, it, it really allows the city, once this legislation passes, to really focus in on making those changes within our standard operating procedures. Mayor Bottoms had signed an executive order with a number of police reform measures and, and this duty to intervene. Have you had a conversation with her about how this would be different? And do you know if she's on board with it? So uh, I, I I haven't spoken to the mayor in a very long time. What's a long time? Um, uh, just a, just a, a, a long period of time. What was um, a long period of time? Like a couple months, a year? Um, it's been a it's been a while. Um, you know where we've had a direct conversation, but um, I have reached out to the um, interim chief. Um, Bryant to mm-hmm. speak about the legislation. I've also reached out to the chairwoman, uh, Joyce Shepard, uh, with the Public Safety Committee. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing my part to kind of reach out to have this conversation because this th- these these are conversations that mm-hmm. that you have to have um, in order to move legislation like this forward. Mm-hmm. And if, if we can get it done, then great, because we haven't done it yet. But if we can get it done and, and, and expand, you know, on this standard operating procedure with regards to an officer's duty to intervene and we can have something on the books that's that's solidified, that 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 the public can trust, that other officers can feel safe um, engaging in with regards to retaliation or anything else, we wouldn't need this resolution. How much support uh, so- do you have from your fellow council members? So uh, I introduced this on uh, Monday and uh, l- last Monday, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm now kind of conversing with the council members to garner that support. I mean, I've reached out to every last one of them, um, but I again, I think this is this is common sense legislation. Mm-hmm. I I can't imagine why no one would support a resolution that encourages us to really take a closer look. At. You didn't put that in the legislation, did you? A closer look. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't use those words, did you? <laughs> Come on now. Rose, you like how I fit that in? But you know, I think this is—I think this is common sense legislation, Rose. I mean, the the like the mayor said on the recording you played. I mean, these are things that local municipalities should be working through. And to be honest, I mean, this is something that should have already been done. I mean, this should have expanding an officer's duty to intervene and laying out a very clear framework that, you know, makes an officer feel comfortable, but also establishes trust with the community. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that that we should have had on the books over a year ago, you know, and longer. I, I don't even want to put a time frame mm-hmm. for it, but this should have been done. And I don't know if you recall this or not, Rose, but I came on your show and we talked about this. Um, remember when I, I made the notion that, hey, we are all responsible 
for the death of 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 Rayshard Brooks. Like we're 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 all responsible for the deaths of unarmed black people in, in, in Atlanta because these measures are measures we could have been taking. It doesn't mm-hmm. take folks being killed unarmed black people being killed in this city for us to now take a look at our policing policies to determine how to improve them or make them better. Mm -hmm. This is work that should have been done and it should have been done to the point in which it it resulted in a de-escalation for instance of the Rayshard Brooks case where somebody could have called the man an Uber, sent him home and towed his car and let him deal with it when he sobered up the next day. So it's things like this that I, I kind of, you know, uh, you know, take a step back from and, and, and really reflect on is, is that why is this happening now? And why is it happening now across the country? Well, let me ask well, you this but before we get run out of time, uh, Councilmember Brown, because also in terms of leadership, uh, there's still that interim tag on, on Chief Bryant. Do you feel also that maybe you all need to f- hurry up? It's been a while now. Uh, to, and to get a, a police chief in there who can also you can work with. Because you may bring in a chief who does not want something like this. So can we address that real quickly? Yeah. So listen, um, I'm a strong believer that we need a permanent chief of police. You cannot continue to operate within this city without one. Not to discredit anything about Chief Bryant and and his role as an interim chief. Uh, We appreciate his service to this city. But we need a chief of police. And and, and let me just say one more thing, Rose. Mm -hmm. Not only do we need a chief of police, but we, you know, for me, we need to make sure that we're being inclusive. We have so many great people on this police force. We don't need to hire outside of Atlanta. We have great people right here on this police force that, that are willing to take on this job and are and are capable of doing an incredible job in changing the landscape of policing in the city. And finally, as we wrap up, you know, I cannot end this conversation without addressing rumors out there because they've been everywhere that you might be considering a run for mayor of Atlanta. Councilman Brown, are you considering a run? Which that could be easy, but are you planning to run? So, um, Rose, um, I appreciate you so much. And um, yeah, I'm definitely considering a run for mayor. Um, and I have been exploring the idea for some time now. Um, I have not made a decision yet, mm-hmm. um, but I'm definitely uh, highly considering it. Given that, and also some of the, the legal challenges that you have, because you were indicted, can you understand folks saying, well, is all that straightened out? What's up with that, as some would say? Yeah, unfortunately, Rose, I can't speak to the legalities of the case. But Mm -hmm. what I can say is, is that there's, you know, that folks should keep up with what's happening with the case so they can understand what's been transpiring. And and I I am innocent and and have always said that. And I think it will show um, with the verdict of this case if it continues. All right. And and City Council Member Antonio Brown, thank you so much for taking time. Thank you for answering the questions. I really appreciate it. That's it for this additional Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. As well as wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts, Closer Look with Rose Scott should be there. 
It better be. If not, let me know. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.